Welcome to Tech Talks, a podcast brought to you by 70 Agency. You're listening to Martina and Barbara. A quick note before we start with the episode. Uh, in this episode, we have been talking to Johan Bergelin, a co-founder and partner at 70 Agency. And instead of a one-hour uh, discussion, which we initially planned for, this extended up uh, and ended up being a much longer episode. Therefore, we have decided to divide this episode into two parts. So today, what you will hear us talk about is about globalization of economies and how to build resilient businesses. And then we will release a second part in the next two weeks where we talk everything about cybersecurity. Enjoy! Welcome to 70 Tech Talks! <laughs> Welcome! Hi Barbara, how are you doing today? Hi Martina, I am great. How are you and what are we talking about today and who are we talking to today? <laughs> uh, I'm great, thank you for asking. Uh, even on a, on a cold Monday like this. But yeah, actually I think we have a really, really exciting episode lined up for today. Because I think what we're going to be talking about today, I've heard this being brought up consistently throughout the last half year. So just to give some context, I sit in a lot of in client interviews all the time. Uh, we discuss what's going on with their business, what's going on in their industry, what is going on in their industry affecting their business. And the last six months or year, uh, a recurring theme is resilience, uh, operational resilience, supply chain resilience, technological resilience. And so today... We want to talk about resilience. What does it mean? What's what's impacting it? And what's making it a hot topic right now? So for this, we brought on the guy that is sitting with me in those interviews most of the time. Johan <laughs> uh, Bailin, co-founder and partner at 70. Um, I mean, you're obviously here because you're very well read in the area but also I don't think I know anyone else who is so excited about the topic of resilience yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, well, welcome and maybe you. you want to introduce yourself a little bit uh, yeah sure uh, my name is Johan uh, founding partner of Seventh Agency I've been working uh, with the team for about 12 years now and I have a weird background, maybe a little bit, for being a brand, brand, brand person. I studied physics and uh, and economics, and in a combination. And then I turned out doing powerpoints and concepts and creative ideas. But that's also why I love to work with kind of technology companies, which I do mostly, and why I'm also partly weirdly interested in. Very narrow, weird <laughs> topics like resilience and cybersecurity. I will touch on in this episode. Yeah. Well, welcome, Johan. Um, let's just go to the very definition of what does resilience mean in the context of the topic that we're talking about today. I mean, resilience. I, I would say just means in the context of, of the corporate world, it's just the ability for a company to recoup and act in times of distress without losing kind of business continuity. So it's just as for a human being, being resilient to bad times without kind of breaking down and cracking uh, down. So that, I mean, it's just the ability to endure tough times, I would say. 
And, and I think one of the reasons why we even had this topic on hand, you had a slightly different topic at first, uh, and I thought it was interesting to kind of tie it into the more the global situation we have today because we have really seen a world that is not that resilient for the last, let's say, two years or mm. two and a half years. When did the pandemic start? 2020. 2020, yeah, so it's two and a half years of really weird situation that we haven't really seen in modern times, I would say. So that's why I thought it would be kind of interesting to maybe broaden the topic a little bit, uh, not only talking about cybersecurity, but also why resilience has become such a important thing that a lot of people talk about. And um, what has happened before the pandemic uh, started? Why haven't, why hasn't it been a hotter topic then? And why is it so much more now? I think everything worked up until the pandemic. Like in general, it kind of worked. And we've had, you know, decades of prosperity I mean, we haven't had a there is we haven't had like a downturn really in the economy since 2008 uh, with the Lehman Brothers crash, and it was quite a short one. And prior to that, we had a decade of quite good growth, um, only interpunctuated by the uh, the collapse in the early 2000 of the the IT bubble, mm-hmm. which we also kind of recouped from fairly quickly. Even that was a little bit harsher maybe than the Lehman Brothers crash. And, and prior to that. I mean, going back further 10 years, uh, at least in, 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 in Sweden, we had like a housing bubble crash in the early 90s. But apart from that, it's been a f- mm. fairly solid trajectory of just getting things better. And I think, and, and that's kind of what I wanted to bring into this conversation about like why, how could global, globalization has been such a success story in general uh, over at least, you know, 30 decades, we can stop, or not 30 decades, three decades, Mm. and we can stop there. It has been happening even before that. But, and and that's where I thought it was interesting. Like, globalization has worked like a clockwork, and then all of a sudden it didn't. Mm. That's why I thought it was so, so interesting to kind of broaden the topic into that. Nobody considered what would happen if some of the disruptions were to hit businesses or society. No, because it worked really well, you mm. know, in, 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 in most cases, but we didn't really think about the outliers maybe and the, you know, the black swans of, of globalization. Uh, I mean, we've had them in multiple different occasions, like this is too unlikely to happen, it will never, it will never happen. But we kind of was, we, we, we were kind of good at still to, to fix it. Uh, but now I think it's a different story. So, I mean, I, I brought in um, this book by Thomas Friedman, The World is Flat, mm-hmm. in our conversations, which I, I think it was published back in early 2000. And it's essentially just a, um, it is a, a praise to globalization mm-hmm. and how, how, how well it works. And he kind of outlines a number of different ways that the world has become a level playing field for all actors in the world, um, not only maybe right. the, the dominant Western but also because he, uh, I know he mentions three types of globalization, right? Like the, I think it was like globalization one point uh, zero point oh on one point one point oh one point zero. Um, it was driven by governments mm-hmm. and it was driven by nations. Mm-hmm. The second one would rather be driven by multinational companies and maybe large uh, organizations. 
What is so unique about this third one that we are considered to be in now? Yeah, oh, you're putting me on the spot because I think I think the last one was about the last one was about digitalization. it's driven by various kinds of of digitalization that kind of reduces the barrier between individuals and company and individuals, but that also, of course, translates into companies in the way that information can freely flow back and forth yeah. in a different way. So, I mean, he has he has 10, I can just go quickly through the 10 different uh, like levers of, 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 of things that make the world flat. Like, so he talks about the collapse of the, of the Berlin Wall, like in, in, in 89, which kind of just sets the stage for this to happen, right? And then he talks about Netscape, which is for those of you who weren't around back then, it's just the first web browser that was actually working in a good way um, and founding Mark Andreessen, Andreessen's um, private wealth. And- Andreessen. Mark Andreessen. Andreessen's private wealth. So, yeah. so, so good job for him. But that kind of just made a, gave us a tool to actually be able to communicate digitally uh, in, in a simple way. And then it talks about very boring stuff like workflow software things that make it possible to actually move tasks around, not just doing them in one single place. Um, And he talks about uploading, um, so you can kind of actually collaborate on digital projects from anywhere you are. So open source software, for example, would be one example of that. I mean, in today, we don't even think about it. Today, it's like everyone is doing that all the time, uh, working from different places on, on, on common kind of projects. And it talks about outsourcing and offshoring, essentially just being able to focus on your core, your, your core business and letting other people do the support stuff that is support mm-hmm. for you, but could be core for them. And offshoring, being able to do that in the location where labor is cheapest um, to do that or more, most skilled or whatever other parameter you want to use. Uh, and, the, you know, so we don't have to go into this because it's not really relevant, but he, there are a number of things that are kind of making the world flatter. And when you read this book, like I, I got a sense of it was a while ago, but like every nothing can fail in mm. this world. Like because like oh, the technology and the way that it progresses kind of naturally pushes the world to be more flat. But then all of a sudden, when the pandemic kind of hit us, um, it turned out that we weren't as flat. Like technology had made individual collaboration easier. Hence flattening the world. But you still have um, very different ways of looking on what is valuable in the world. So you have like US-China relations, for example. I mean, China, I just looked at one of those weird graphs that you always have in your Facebook feed, you know, those shorts where you have the richest persons in the world from 1960 to now. And you, see, <laughs> and you have like competing bars, yeah. you know. Uh, and and that, that those are always mesmerizing. You can't really stop looking at them regardless <laughs> if it's like which sports person has made the most money or yeah, whatever. Uh, and then it's like, it's interesting to see obviously the US has the biggest GDP and has had for a long time. Um, and, and but 
I think this graph started like in 1989 or 1990. So you had the Soviet Union, they were, they were number two, but they dropped obviously quite significantly in the beginning of the 90s because, well, the country disappeared uh, and replaced by Russia, but they dropped quite substantially. And But China was nowhere to be seen on the top 10 like until maybe 15 years ago. That's hard to imagine today, but they were just like climbing up and now it's obviously the second biggest, but it's still, you know, some some ways behind the US. So yeah, we are trading, we are exchanging services even between the US and China. But in terms of flattening, in terms of values, how we act, laws, uh, culture, we're not really as flat as at least I thought we would be. Yeah. But isn't also another, like another take on that is that maybe not all types of flattening is necessarily good or not all type of globalization is going to be beneficial. I mean, now we just we just assume that the more you can globalize your, maybe well, your supply chain, the more that you can, you know, put resources in places where it's more financially efficient and so on, then that's going to be beneficial for you. Instead of maybe concentrating on that, it's you're supposed to develop operational and maybe supply chain resilience that is not only financially strong or beneficial, but that is also secure. Did we miss, did we lose security in, you know, this arms race for globalization? Yeah, to some extent, I think we did. Uh, but it didn't really matter because the benefits were so big. I mean, I mean, globalization is by all means like one of the most important um not value um leverages no or? no no um drivers for um, um prosperity right, right? Oh, yeah. i mean like if, if like i i brought up some some interesting stats uh, preparing for this like if you look at you know the number of people in extreme poverty mm. i think that's like it's one of the things that should be a news headline every day but never is like in 1990 you had 1.9 billion people lived in extreme poverty and that was 36% of the world's population if you look at uh, our world in data and i think it's the world bank uh, statistics by 2020 or by 2018, you had 650 million uh, people in, ex in extreme poverty. And that is around 8% of the world's population. So we've gone down from 36 to well below 10%. And, and if you look at where has that happened, it's in South Asia, it's in East, East Asia and the Pacific. So it's like China is a big part of that. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. They've been lifted out of poverty. Uh, substantially, you still see that it actually grows in sub-Saharan Africa in absolute numbers, uh, which is a big failure of you know the world in general, but also probably connected to a lot of actually growth of like population. Yeah, growth. exactly. So, but still, like overall, hundreds of thousands of people have been lifted out of poverty, like every week or maybe even every day, and we never see that in the news. You know, when people go above the the two dollar. Line, which I think is what defines absolute poverty, $2 per day. That has been an astounding success for the global community. So we didn't, ha I don't think like this was so good. Yeah. We didn't really have to care about the 
potential downsides of globalization and the threats to globalization. Really. Right, and especially maybe since we were so new in the concept of globalization, maybe we also couldn't see how we could be impacted. Yeah, because it hadn't been done before. Yeah, we're so, still experimenting. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, oh, there's such a good quote, which I don't think is true, but it was on the Frederick <laughs> podcast. When, when, when was this? Like, could have been like in the 80s and, and uh, some US politician met up with, I think it was a Chinese party member and he asked him, like the, the US person asked the, the Chinese person, like, so what are your thoughts on the, um, on, on the French Revolution? And the Chinese ans- reportedly answered, well, it's a bit too early to tell. <laughs> <laughs> it, might, it might actually not be that. But I think it's like the, the, the global project is obviously in the making. Mm. And, 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 and this, this kind of phase of it, let's say the digitalized phase, is only has like 30 years. And that's way too early yeah. uh, to really kind of... Uh, to, uh, well, we can probably tell that it's good mm. by 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 far. It's good, but we have not seen actually what we need to do to secure it. But can we ever be fully protected for the future or prepared for the future? Because there's so many new things happening on various levels, like the geopolitical um, problems, the 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 environmental problems. There's always new things appearing, right? So in 10 years from now, we will have technologies that maybe are unknown to us today. Mm. So are we ever, will we ever be able to be fully ready? No, I don't think so. Absolutely not. I mean, considering that disruptions will probably be be increased in volume and they will become more... um, Intense. More intense and less predictable. And that's quite a dangerous combination. So if you look at the situation we have today uh, and why I think like the global valuable order, if you say global order is usually a very negative thing, but I think it's a valuable thing. I think the pandemic has shown us like how what we've built is a fairly fragile system. And, and, uh, and then, you know, th- those fragilities can come from various places, right? I mean, the Suez Canal crisis um, a year and a half ago, you know, when we was had it the... Long ago? I think it was about... Yes. A, I think it was a, a, around that yeah. time when this ship got stuck and just completely blocking all global trade almost, or at least making them take very long detours around Africa. Um, I mean, that just showed us how incredibly unstable our our like physical supply chains really are and, and i mean it's it's really a bit of a miracle that the suez canal in an area of the world which is maybe the most unstable politically unstable area that we've ever had like that we act this hasn't happened before why haven't anyone just pulled out a bomb in that canal you know, just to disrupt global trade. I mean, it's not like it's a super peaceful area no. uh, for various reasons that we shouldn't go into now because then this podcast will be five hours long. Uh, but that's like, a, that's, like a, that's like a technical situation to some extent. Mm. Like it's a canal, it's a physical piece of, of, of water and land. But when you look at the, the geopolitics between the, the, the East and the West, China and the US, 
that's a more of a, as I, as I was alluding to before, more of like a value-based difference. Like the, mm. the, we haven't flattened, we haven't built this global community where we share values, right? Trade has helped us to keep those in check. But then all of a sudden, when something disturbs the system, all of a sudden those differences pop up, right? And you can also see it in the Ukrainian, um, uh, Ukrainian-Russian conflict as well, right? We can't even begin to comprehend almost what goes on in the mind of Putin. Mm. Like, why does he act like this? What was the rationale for him to, you know, restore old Russia, you know, where, you know, back in like 1200 years ago? Yeah. How ambitious is he? Why is he caring about mm. those things? Like, it's hard to comprehend for someone who's like, hasn't been growing up in that kind of a culture. Mm. So we haven't really flattened on a cultural level. And maybe we shouldn't, maybe we should. I don't really, I don't really have a view on what, what is good or bad. But this, like these things pop up yeah. in times of, of where the system kind of is partly failing us. And I think that's something that we need to, we most likely need to handle going forward. Like how can we, because I think these regional and local differences will probably uh, be, be a little bit exaggerated for the years to come, mm. right? Most likely over time, technology will flatten this as well. We will talk more, we will communicate more, we will trade more. But right now, we're moving into a, a, an era where we will most likely um, exaggerate our, our local differences and the way that we are unique and special, which can be seen you know, in many different ways. We can just look at the election mm. uh, in Sweden uh, a month ago or, 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 or the kind of nationalist right-wing movements all across Europe. Mm. They've just been brewing like, because mm. people seem to have a, a big need of a national, unique identity of some sort. And you know, that takes different shapes and forms. But I wouldn't be surprised if this is connected to, you know, to each other to each other somewhat. Yeah, I mean, we've obviously seen many countries by this time moving in the same, that kind of direction of, of very contrasting opinions and very, mm. um, and to very, in a very aggressive way, expressing those opinions as well. Yeah, I think this is it's an interesting foundation for why all of a sudden resilience as the way it's going to pop up is going to pop up in technical terms in the security terms and in safety terms in many different ways but i think an underlying driver of this is this the context of the world we're in right uh, you know if you go back to the late 90s before putin uh, and the the wall had fallen the world felt flat like at least from a western 20 something or how old was i <laughs> it felt like it felt like the cosmopolitan cosmopolitan way of kind of living, exploring the world, interesting in cultures, traveling around. Like you know, it felt like it had won. Like, and that was probably due to uh, a lot of not knowing what the world actually looks like. But still, it it was felt like you had Tony Blair. Cool Britain in in the UK is like you had 
um, uh, liberal liberal democratic party. Uh, you know, you had Clinton in the in the in the West Wing, and it was like the world was coming together. It felt like it was coming together because finally the the, the monster of communism had gone away, mm. and it felt nice. And I think that was the the cultural context of the book written by Thomas Friedman. The world was becoming one. But then, like twenty years later, it's like mm, maybe we're further apart from each other than we were back then. Like maybe we just like moved away from each other. Um, so I think that is that's an interesting backdrop to the security question and and, and the resilience question as well. Is technology in this context making us more disconnected to one another? Yeah, I, that's a <laughs> freaking million dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> Because values you. It's so hard to change someone's values, right, for on a country-to-country basis, even on a company uh, basis. So, what what can let's say businesses right now do to be able to live with the current situation that we're in? How can you prepare for anything that we're going through now? Yeah, that I I don't. Let, but let's let's talk, take the first part of that question. Mm-hmm. Technology that increases communication between people will most likely, over a long time, have a tendency to flatten the world. Most likely. I'm not saying it's 100%, but most likely. That has always kind of happened. Mm. We have been able to trade more, communicate more, meet, learn more about the world. And that goes back like for as long as we've had... like. The written word, the the written word, <laughs> and but now, of course, like when you look at the way that the internet works and acts today, like we don't really necessarily see a proof of that. If you just limit ourselves to the last, let's say, five to ten years, mm. now we are now we're. I mean, the division in society in terms of i believe in this truth mm. and i believe in this truth and those are in, in you know completely incompatible with each other so we can't even have a conversation about the facts on the ground like we can't like because we see things so differently that is something that has been driven mm. by social media or in some way or another uh, and so so in this case in a short period of time no i, I it hasn't made us closer to each other. It's very hard to have a conversation and a debate uh, from a common ground in this day and age. So will that ha- will that kind of will that change over time? Hard to say, right, to be honest. Um, but right now it looks like we're further apart from each other than ever. But that's I mean, isn't that more of a design fault in the platforms that we have today? That mm. the business models that you chose for You know, the entire Web 2.0 era was to, uh, well, to get revenue from people's reactions and then showing people um, advertisements based mm. on those reactions. But essentially, yeah, it's it's a, an entire economy built on yeah. reactions and engagement. Mm. So maybe it's just that that business design, uh, business model design is. Faulty at mm. you know from start. Yeah, faulty for this particular purpose. Yes, right? like, exactly. This is what we want yeah. to create. Yes. I mean, but it's still a private company, so they can have whatever business model they choose to have. Yeah. But but then you like, do, how do you count in the account for the externalities of you know a privatized public square? Yeah. That is, I mean, I think that is one of the hardest 
you know nuts that we have to crack in mm-hmm. the in the years to come in general, not only for a for a business kind of perspective. So um, yeah, so so it, that is yeah. I don't think anyone has an answer to this problem, but we can see that it is a problem that yes. needs to be addressed somehow on a on a political and societal level. Exactly, and that's why I think it's going to be so exciting also to see how Web 3.0 develops and what directions companies with that kind of infrastructure how they choose to design their uh, their models. Yeah, if it happens. Well, most if likely it will probably happen. Slowly um, but surely we're getting I'm not, I'm, I'm not necessarily as, as pro and enthusiastic yeah. as Barbara. Because <laughs> uh, I don't really know. Yeah. It, hasn't really, it hasn't really emerged yet. No. It might, you know, you, I mean... It, it 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 is of course an interesting proposition, um, no, of course. but in the, in, you know to decentralize the internet again. I mean, it was decentralized before, before. we had the global platforms, yeah. right? It, it was uh, decentralized due to the fact that there weren't any centralized platforms that could control things. So the golden age of of, of the internet in the in the in the noughties uh, was good. <laughs> I love those days. Connecting <laughs> <laughs> so through your phone. Yeah. 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 Because I have a question. If we maybe go back a little bit, we were talking about the geopolitical yeah. climate, how that has impacted supply chains, but also maybe, yeah, especially our trade. Um, do we think that uh, the, like, are the risks of a global supply chain starting to outweigh the rewards? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 uh, I had to kind of see if, my views on this is actually were actually kind of substantiated by <laughs> someone who knows what they're actually talking about. It was only gut feel, but I actually found an article from Harvard Business Review from earlier this year uh, asking that particular question. So, so I think this this quote I think is interesting. Like supply chain management is entering a new era. The relatively benign environment of the last three decades, during which we saw tremendous growth of the tradable sector and the expansion of far-flung global supply chains, is probably over. We will still see trade growth, as it is difficult for any country or region to be self-sufficient in all the goods and materials consumed by modern economies. But the new focus on resilience and sustainability is going to present managers with fresh choices and challenges as they reorient their production footprint to ones that will be more flexible and more regional. So I think, I mean, this is, I think this kind of, this is a much better written text than I've been thinking in my head, but I think <laughs> it, it summarizes to a large extent um, uh, the, the thesis that I'm, that, that I'm driving. Like, of course, mm. we will have trade, and over time, we will probably have global, like, much more dependency on, like, the global trade. Again, we still have, obviously, mm. and that it will continue to grow, but you have to kind of prepare yourself to be. At least, not maybe not self-sufficient, but at least less consider the risks mm. of a global supply chain. I mean, the just-in-time production paradigm mm. might be, you know, have to be reconsidered. Maybe you need more buffers in the system, and that's going to mm. be costly, of course, for for a lot of companies. Like one customer that we that we uh, we were talking to Martina who said like one of their customers had a worth years of supply in their stock to be able wow. to um, kind of build out the the infrastructure they are creating like so they had like a year's supply and two years ago they had did not have that right and and they did not care about 
uh, having things produced on their own national soil. Mm. So it, it, it is a massive reorientation, a strategic reorientation uh, around this. And whenever I speak to, to our customers um, and you know, when I get a chance to talk to the strategy heads or you know, business leaders, this has come up as a massive massive topic that they need to address mm. which of course changes in our job the messaging and what is valuable to actually talk about mm. um, so so there will be a reorientation i think from from most companies to to manage this um, so yeah it's 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 a it's a challenging situation for sure but a lot of the supply chains, I think in, in the past, at least China has grown quite a lot because we have started outsourcing to China for mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of different things. So in a way, we can also see that we have enabled China to grow yeah, as much yeah, as they sure. have. And I, I think a big part of that was that we were able to start producing things for a much less money yeah. than, let's say, in Europe. So there were some topics also in the media during the last year about how Europe is lagging behind, not just, of course, China, but also the US. Mm. But can we, I mean, can we retrain or develop the European nations? To be able to support Europe, let's say, if we get disconnected from other supply chains in that context, the topic was around that Europe is not as resilient compared to some other mm-hmm. areas in the world. Uh, this is also something I've been thinking a lot about, especially from a technological kind of point of view. Um, the role that Europe has taken in mm. general in the kind of in the in the globalized economy. I mean. If you're, if you divide the world into three areas, uh, from a technology perspective, mm. and unfortunately we can then almost take out like Africa and South America, unfortunately, you know, but that's just a fact of of the matter. Then you have like the U.S., you have Europe, and you have East Asia or. China and 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 countries around it. If I may, now this is obviously an oversimplification. In the U.S., you have technology, a, an idea about technology that everything kind of goes. Mm. You can build whatever, just explore, like which is what we always have seen from the U.S. And then you have like um, uh, the East. Let's call it simply the East, like where you have. Uh, where technology has been used to a large extent like for control, controlling um, the population to some extent, but it has mm. been used in a very different way than in the US. And then we have Europe, which is the interesting, who are we in this context? We are, we are the regulators of the world, mm. right? So if, if, if I make it super simple, we have zero companies in the top 20 tech companies list in terms of, of, of turnover and revenue. We have, in Sweden, for example, we have some, obviously, some some, air, some companies that are super interesting and we have, you know, a lot of unicorn um, dollar, multi-dollar... Uh, uh, Multi-billion dollar. Yeah, like, doll, what do you call it, like a valuation over one billion dollars. Mm. Um, and we have very many of those like <laughs> compared to our size, but they are still small comparatively mm. on a global scale. 
But in Europe, we've been kind of, we've just been, we've been looking at people developing technology in other parts of the world and then regulating the usage of that technology in our own backyard. <laughs> and it's, it's, it struck me about a year ago, it's like 2021 was the first year a European company developed their own from the ground up built electrical car platform. So Volkswagen developed their platform that is used for Volkswagen, um, Skoda, and Audi. Like so, and they're all built on the same platform. The 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 three kind of entry level electric cars. Um, mm. But that was like the, in 2021. That was the first time we had uh, a platform that was built in Europe, created in Europe, and where we actually built a new piece of technology mm-hmm. in the automotive industry, and. I mean, if you just look at then the US, we have Tesla, obviously, but we have other players now. Um, well, let's see how long Rivian can survive. But um, they re- how much? They re- I think they recall like thirteen thousand cars the other week. Really? So, yeah. So their stock plummeted quite a lot. What Don't happened? My word. I, there was something with the steering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> Not the problem you want to have. But it was something very crucial to stop or turn the car. (laughs) Uh, No, anyway, I mean, but but still, like you had this Tesla for for how many years now? Like 10, 12 12 years? They they actually had an actual platform. And in South Korea, uh, the Kia group, uh, I think they're on their third generation of electrical car platforms, Mm. which is, you know, Europe is. 10 years behind. Yeah. And, and uh, we, we're behind in many of these areas uh, in terms of how we use technology. And I think, you know, there's many reasons for this, uh, but we are many countries in the EU need to, you know, need to actually agree with each other. That's a complicated thing when you have to create regulations around technology. So it's not all bad, obviously, because if we can also be a safeguard and a, and a watchdog for how technologies are used, which is you know not necessarily bad, but it also hampers our innovation. So in terms of resilience, depends on what do we mean by resilience. Do we mean like long-term resilient economies built on innovation and technology development? I mean, I think we are in a bit of a long-term problematic state. Mm. Uh, but to be able to be self-sufficient in more basic things like food, you know, of course. Food, uh, the, garment production. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think we're challenged with all of these, like, and, mm. and especially like the energy situation where we're giving a power of our own energy supply to, to, to Russia, which has shown very clearly in people's wallets mm. uh, the last couple of months and what that means without going into any kind of view on how you should run that. It's mm. obviously that we've been dependent and mm. on on, um, on trade. But I think that's also a good example of what I said before in terms of values. Uh, like We might have thought that Russia was just another European country yeah. in the late 90s, you know, when they had a, a fun guy, you know, when Boris Yeltsin was conducting the, the Russian uh, army orchestra with a cucumber and, you know, being drunk. <laughs> uh, did he have a cucumber or was that just in my head? I'm not sure, uh, <laughs> but I have heard that he, he was but I heard about his drinking yeah, adventures. Yeah, conducting the, 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 the military orchestra anyway. But I mean, so, so we thought they were just like another European country mm. and they weren't. So this is again like this, like, yes, we could trade, but the flattening of culture, you know, 
or, or values didn't happen as fast. And maybe it shouldn't happen because maybe it's good. I mean, it's obviously good to have a multitude of cultures and different perspectives of things. But in this case, I think we, 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 we didn't, we were a bit naive. Will this drive regional innovation more? Because I'm thinking just now with the question of energy, will that push, for instance, European countries to, uh, to look into you know, sustainable energy sources more? Yeah, I mean, for sure it will, most likely. Uh, Maybe it has even probably started for that yeah, matter. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, yes, of course it will, out of necessity. But yeah. the question is, will that be faster than global innovation on the same topics? Uh, but I mean, of course, it will have to like we will have to solve things yeah. mm. unless we want to kind of freeze to death. And we also need to figure out this, obviously. Because correct me if I'm wrong, but we don't have any chip production in Europe, right? I'm not no, sure, but I, I don't think, think so. very very limited. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I can just imagine that that's obviously something that you have invested quite a lot of not just resources, but also time in refining and. Yeah, so the question is just like how how long will it take for, for instance, like an actor as Europe uh, or a region as Europe to somehow find, uh, yeah. Find I think that that will take a long time. Yeah, like to to, to produce and and manufacture, design, manufacture and distribute chips. Yeah, silicon. That's like that's a that's a complex piece of yeah. process. And that's not going to happen overnight. But I think, like the main, the main, we will see most likely some kind of regionalization and localization. This will happen a lot of different things around that. But I think what we need to aim for is like how do we build a global world that is way more resilient than than the one that we had pre-pandemic. Like how what can we learn from the disruptions uh, that you know, that the last two and a half years have taught us. Because this will happen again. It's like, it's not going to be the la- last pandemic. And this was just, uh, we were lucky with this pandemic. My God, we were lucky. If we would have had the Black Plague, I mean, <laughs> or, I mean it, that killed, you know, a third of the European population. Yeah. Uh, and now we got a bad flu, which was, you know, really bad, but it was still a bad flu. Mm. Who knows what we could have gotten? So and who knows need... what's happening in the future? Yeah, I mean, who who knows? Like, we, that's, it's very hard, and that just showed us the fragility of the system that we built. So I think, of course, we need to. We will see a retraction, but that's something that we need to strive away from again and kind of not rebuild from the ground up. But we need to re. We need to learn from this and build a global system that is way more resilient than the one we had, right? And that is something I'm not even going to speculate in, like like how you do that, because that's that's for politicians and 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 business global business leaders to kind of design together. Uh, but it needs to happen because we need the specialization that globalization gives us. If we don't solve this. We can say bye bye to that, you know, very nice trend of reducing global poverty uh, in absolute numbers. That has been absolutely astonishing. It needs to happen, um, but maybe in a different way. That's obviously, to some extent, that's going to take an initiative, a governmental initiative, to drive that kind of healthy globalization that is that ha- has a foundation, a resilient foundation. But then at the same time. 
what are the what are the responsibilities or opportunities that a business has to support that? Think, that it's yeah. a very wide question. I can yeah, hear. No, 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 of course, yes, it's a it's a, it's a politi- politi- political question to some extent, but it's also a a it's in the interest of organizations and enterprises around the world to make this happen. So, I mean, these are always some kind of collaboration between multiple different stakeholders in society. And it's not one one solution to this, obviously. But it's in everyone's best interest. You know, why would you not want to have a stable supply chain from Taiwan that produces, what is it? Semiconductors. Semiconductors. And 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 and, and, and like, how much is it? Like 80, 90% of the semiconductors in the world. Mm. Of course, people will need access to that. That's, that's in everyone's interest. So, I mean, just looking at how long it takes to, to get a new car, uh, you know, that has a lot of those kind of components, or like a new PlayStation 5 um, that, that could take two years to get a PlayStation 5 because it has such a chip shortage. Uh, so it's in everyone's interest to, to kind of rebuild this. And I think everyone just needs to take their own responsibility for what they, what they can do. Uh, which maybe is maybe a good segue into the topic of cybersecurity <laughs> that we also wanted to, to to cover here today. And this concludes part one of this episode. Welcome back for part two in the coming weeks, where we talk about everything on cybersecurity. Thank you all for listening. Go to the links in description to follow us on social media. And if you like this episode, don't forget to share and subscribe so you never miss out on future episodes.